the book of 2 Timothy. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 9 to 22. If you don't have a Bible with you, if you pop your hand up, one of our stewards would be really happy to bring you one. It's helpful to follow along. And uh, there are some of the pillars here that if you want to grab one that's close to you. Well, last week I found myself thinking about retirement. Uh, not that it's coming anytime soon, uh, but because I got one of those annual statements from a pension provider with a projection of how much income I'll have when I retire. And I thought briefly about what I might do with that money at that time when it comes. And maybe you've had the same experience. Maybe you've thought the same, oh, what can I do with this money? What will I do with all that time? What are your plans for retirement? Well, as I thought about it, I was immediately struck by my own self-centeredness. Holidays and hobbies, that's what came to mind first. Ongoing ministry, not the first thing that came to mind. And I wonder if you ever find yourself thinking along the same lines. That the things you dream about and desire in your retirement are really the things that will just kind of plump up the pillow of your own comfort rather than bring more people into the kingdom of God. It was a challenge for me and my thoughts, maybe a challenge for you too. Thankfully, God's word reminds us that our goal in life is uh, not to have a career and after that take life easy. That's not God's goal for our life, but God's goal for our life is to see as many lives as possible transformed through faith in Jesus Christ. And from that, there is no retirement. Well, there is. It's called heaven. Um, but thankfully, God's word offers these regular reminders also that we should be ministry-minded to the last, working pedal to the metal as gospel ministers, every single one of us, to the end with God's ministry-strengthening presence, the very thing that enables us to do that. Now, that corrective is there for us to see, I believe, in 2 Timothy 4, 9 to 22, and Claire's going to come and read that for us. There you go. Thanks. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with you with Carpus at Troas, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metalworker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him, because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed at Corinth, and I left, tro I left Trophimus ill in Miletus. 
do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Thank you very much. Well, if you've got final instructions or personal remarks written as a header over this section, score it out. Uh, or write a letter to the publisher saying, what a rubbish summary of what's going on in this bit of the passage. Those headings, by the way, they're not scripture, so that's okay. I'm not telling you to rub out things that are in the Bible. Now, I think rather than final instructions, the simple heading should be the unrelenting gospel leadership of the Apostle Paul and his ongoing care of Timothy. It's not so snappy, his final instructions, I get it, but that's all right. I think that's what it's all about, and here's why. If you've got a sermon sheet, it'd be helpful for you to grab it uh, as we follow along. And we have uh, two main points tonight. The first is this. The first thing we see in verses 9 to 13 in this passage is Paul's ministry-minded leadership. Paul's ministry-minded leadership. Now, let's not forget the context in which the Apostle Paul finds himself. He is in prison awaiting execution. And what is he concerned about as he awaits this execution? Well, you, like I said earlier, you would excuse him, wouldn't you, if he had written about prison life at this point? The conditions, the hardships, the smell, the company he's keeping and all that. But no, it seems that ongoing ministry is his only concern. And two things in particular are on his mind here. First of all, teams. Teams. Look with me at verses 9 to 12. What is Paul actually talking about in this text? What's he listing? What is he listing in 9 to 12? It's names, right? He's talking about people. And what details specifically does Paul want us to notice about these people? I would argue that it's proximity to Paul. Proximity to Paul. If this was find my friends on his iPhone, what would you see? One person right there with Paul, the blue dots, and six people who are not, okay? And that's the kind of thing, that kind of thing will always be problematic to a leader like Paul who values the kind of discipleship and mentoring of leaders, the very thing he's been talking about in 2 Timothy 2, chapter, uh, 2, Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, when he says, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses... Entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So he's a man who had discipleship in his DNA. So it's a hard thing for him to be just one person with him and six who are not. Now, apart from sin, nothing, nothing threatens the ongoing spread of the gospel quite like a lack of leadership training, which is why I'm so encouraged to be in a church family that values it. So when we read verses 9 to 12, I think one of the key things we're supposed to see is that Paul's team is depleted. And I think there are two reasons here, one good and one bad. Uh, the bad one, first of all, temptation. Some, it seems, have left him because they've left the ministry and in all likelihood left the gospel behind. Or why else would Paul say of Demas in verse 10, Demas, because he loved the world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Well, Colossians 4 tells us that Demas 
was part of Paul's inner circle. Not anymore. Uh, why not? Demas loved the world. What a chilling summary. If love for the world, friends, we have to see, can harden our hearts towards Jesus, even the hearts of those who have been in ministry. Demas had become one of those kind of spiritual meteorites, burning brightly to begin with, but fizzling out over time. Nothing but a cold, dead rock in the end. And friends, what a warning is packaged for us in verse 10. Do you need any more warning of what loving worldly things like gaming or money or clothes or reputation or relationships or sex loving any of those things more than you love God, more than you love Jesus, do we understand what that will do to our hearts? It will draw us away as idols do. That's what makes love for the world. Loving anything more than we love God fundamentally life-threatening. Life-threatening. And it's not just Demas. I think Crescens and Titus are spoken of actually in the same breath. Now, it doesn't explicitly say that they've fallen into the same trap as Demas, but they do fall into the same sentence group. And Paul doesn't say what he says about Tychicus in verse 12, that he sent them out on mission. So listen, if pastors even that Paul appointed and felt comfy having alongside him in ministry, if they are prone to wander and to misplace their affections and their love to the point that they leave ministry and the gospel behind, it can happen to any one of us. Test your hearts. Seek accountability. Fuel your affections for Jesus by reading even half a sentence of your Bible every day. It's so very important. So that's the bad reason for the depletion of Paul's team, but there is a good reason. There's ministry, as I've just mentioned. Some have been sent elsewhere. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus, verse 12. Now, even Paul's hardships and loneliness wouldn't stop him from prioritizing the spread of the gospel. Love for God and love for others is what makes a person, like Paul, make such personal sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. And that in itself is an example to us. In what ways can we do the same? As a church family. As individuals. Maybe it was like what Adam was talking about last week. Being sacrificial with our time and with our homes. Inviting people. Come on in. Come on in. Maybe it's the way we use our money. What an example to us of making personal sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. So Paul's team is depleted, and that's why he calls a team meeting, as, he, as we see in verse 9. Do your best, Timothy, to come to me quickly. And verse 11, get Mark and bring him with you because he's useful to me. Now what's on Paul's mind? Ministry. Look at it. In my ministry. Now Mark's an interesting chap. He has a history Actually, in Acts, we read that Paul and Barnabas, who were effectively the church planting dream team, split over their view on Mark's usefulness. Paul said, no, 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 I'm not having him. And Barnabas said, yeah, come on, let's give him a go. It'll be all right. 
But Paul said no, they decided to go their separate ways. But now Paul's confidence in Mark is obviously restored. We don't know why. We don't know the background to it. All we know is that he says, bring him. He's going to be important for my ministry. Now, what's Paul doing here? What's on his mind when he's calling this conference? Well, I think as we've seen throughout this letter to Timothy, Timothy's a guy who's afraid. He's running the risk of being ashamed of Paul, his sufferings, and therefore of the gospel. So Paul is saying, I want you, Timothy, to come and spend a little bit of time with me. But he's gathering other people around as well, because Luke's already there. And I want you to get Mark on the way and bring him here. There's nothing like that kind of little collegiate conference, that little Bible study, that mutual accountability and edification, building each other up, spurring each other on towards loving good deeds to get the fire of our hearts burning again. So he's caring for Timothy, and at the same time, he's concerned about ongoing ministry. And he's about to die. Ministry-minded to the last not thinking about himself, just thinking about the gospel. Just thinking about how he's going to invest his time now so that it matters in eternity. And he's gathering a team that he believes will take up the torch as it falls from his hands. Now, I don't know about you, but that's what I want to be like when I'm 107. When I'm old, er, Gray, <laughs> frail, weak, if I'm not able to go out to people, I want people to come to me. And I want to have that kind of heart that will just be so passionate about the gospel. I'm like, if I only have one breath left, it's going to be preach the gospel. It's going to be an encouragement to people to take up the torch so that it won't fall to the ground in our nation. We read in other places that Paul's eyesight is failing, but his vision is crystal clear. I love it. Even when faced with death, his ambition is the same. Nothing will deter him from it. Not imprisonment, not old age. He'll find a way to serve Jesus no matter what. Is that true of us? His circumstances prevent him from conducting the kind of ministry we've seen him enact, going into marketplaces, preaching in the open air. But here he is, gathering this team. It's one of the key ways the gospel spreads. Of course, though, multiplication is not just something that pastors and church leaders do with a few apprentices. It's actually something that we must all do. To take what we have received and pass it on. It's as simple as that. Do we understand the legacy that we can leave if we do that? Are you ambitious for that kind of thing? Just starting to make you think about early retirement so you could do more of this kind of stuff? I hope so. Paul's team is depleted. So he's gathering a team including Timothy, to buoy him up and give him more strength. But verses 13 and 14 tell us he doesn't just want his team. The second thing he wants in this first point is his tools. Look with me there, verse 13 and 14. What does he want Timothy to bring? 
three things. A cloak, some scrolls, and some parchments. Now, why? Why this mix of stuff? I mean, is he just cold? Many of us live with that person who always wants the heating on. You know, you're sweating in shorts and t-shirt, and they're in a fleece under a blanket, and the thermostat's at 27. Is Paul just the cold tatty? I mean, he is talking about winter coming, I suppose, but I think it's much more than that. I think what we're supposed to see in this is Paul's contentment in having all the things that will make him productive in ministry. The cloak will keep him warm, certainly, as he reads and as he studies. No central heating in these prisons he was in. The scrolls are most likely the scriptures. The parchments were, well, parchments were what you wrote stuff on. So either he's out of paper and wants to write some more letters to churches, or he's eager to feed on some of his own, on someone else's writings. Maybe unfinished letters. We don't know exactly. But we wouldn't be surprised in the slightest if Paul was looking for more of God's words to feed his own soul. Paul has taught us elsewhere that reading the Bible is crucial. Crucial to the ongoing nourishment of our own souls. Crucial to the inner expression of our own prayers. That's what prayer fundamentally is, isn't it? Turning God's word into a request before him. Paul has taught us also that reading the Bible is crucial to the outward proclamation of the gospel. And here is a man in his last days still eager to read and think and meditate and minister. And I wonder if our passion, whether we are old or young, is similar. Do we have a passion for God's words, for reading it, for meditating on it, tumbling it around in our heads, letting it sink deeply into our hearts, letting it take root and put on arms and legs in our daily practice and application? Or are we just like, nah, dumber readings, tick on the version app? It's easy to do that, isn't it? But to read it and tumble over what's been said and let that truth shape you. There's nothing else like it. Well, do you see how this section is more than just personal remarks? It's about ministry-minded leadership in 9 to 13. And this gathering of this team and his tools means that however long Paul has left, he expects to spend it teaching and charging leaders with the task of continuing the spread of the gospel. But the second section then helps us see precisely what makes that ministry possible, even in weakness and hardship and limitation. This is point two, God's ministry strengthening presence. God's ministry strengthening presence. In verses 14 to 22, Paul is very realistic about what life is like and its hardships. It's not easy. Actually, the first thing he, that you notice as you go through this final section from 14 to 22 is the hindrances. And they come in two forms. Active opposition, first of all. No one likes having an enemy. Uh, when I was a teenager, I knew a guy who really hated my guts, and I had really upset him quite badly. I was officially his enemy. Uh, he wanted nothing but injury 
for me and my face. Now, I had to walk past his work every single day on the way to school. And I, I tell you, it was terrible. It was horrible having an enemy, even a draining thing having an enemy. And Paul tells us here in verse 14 that he had one himself, someone who did him a great deal of harm. Alexander the metal worker. Now we don't know exactly why. There may be lots of reasons why he did him harm and why he opposed him in the way that he did. It may be that he opposed Paul because, or opposed the gospel because it affected his trade. We see that in Ephesus in Acts. Uh, others because it affects their relationships. Others still because the message is just to them personally offensive, therefore they lash out or will try and stifle or stop the spread of the gospel and to stop the gospel worker. But whatever it was for Paul or, it, or is for Christians nowadays, let us be on our guard in the same way that Paul's telling Timothy to be on his guard against those who strongly oppose it. We start to keep up our guard by being aware that the punches will come. It's a basic element to boxing. Keep your guard up. You don't know exactly when those punches are going to be thrown at you. And it's the same. We keep our guard up by keeping ourselves aware of the truth. Again, quite simply, by reading and studying and meditating on the gospel. By preparing our hearts to know how to answer opponents who come. But primarily recognizing the primary reasons why we guard the gospel. Because it's true. Because Jesus really did live, die, rise, ascend, and Jesus really will return. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, that is the very heart of the gospel. That's what we stand on. That is what many Christians throughout the years have fallen on. We believe this, that Jesus came 2,000 years ago. History records this. But he's no mere man, no mere teacher. He is, as we were singing earlier, the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things. He came because in our sinfulness we had rebelled against God. He came on a rescue mission to save us from the penalty and the punishment of our sins and to bring us into his heavenly kingdom. Now, if all that sounds like complete gobbledygook to you, we'd love to unpack that for you and explain it to you. That's what Christianity Explored is all about. Why don't you sign up at the Connect Corner and go along on Thursday night? They'd love to have you. Chat to the person who brought you. Come and speak to me at the end. I'll be sitting down here. I've got a Bible here that I would love to give you as a free gift. We don't need, really need to have a big chat. I can just give you this with a wee post-it note in there as to where to start. It'd be very helpful for you to read it through it for yourself. Maybe you're at the point where you already believe this. You've been thinking about this already. My encouragement for you is to take up one of the bulletins from the stewards and look on the back. There's a little prayer on there that would guide you through how to talk to God and actually begin this relationship with him. Look into this. It is crucial. Maybe you yourself have been an opponent of the gospel. Let Paul be a living testimony to you that those who have opposed it can become key.
proponents of it. A key enemy of the gospel can truly become a key and a valuable and a dearly loved friend of the gospel. So we as Christians keep our guard up. We guard our own hearts and we guard the gospel itself. Whatever it is for Paul or for Christians, we, be, we are on our guard. We pray for each other. We ought to pray particularly for persecuted Christians, of course. And we ought not to forget that Christ's opponent, Satan, is also our opponent. But above all, remember, his downfall is certain. His roar is tempered. His range is limited. He is a leash, and Christ holds it. Verses 16 to 17 then reveal that hindrances come not only in the form of active opposition, but of disappointing desertion. Look with me, verse 16. I think this is one of the saddest sentences in the whole letter. Who stood by Paul at his first defense? No one. No one. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Luke is with him. Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, other people mentioned towards the foot of the letter. Now, it could very well be, let's face it, that they were not actually there at the time of this first defense and so on. But it would surprise us, wouldn't it, if Paul was completely on his own at that time? Well, he can't be because he's just talked about being deserted. No one stood at his defense. So there were people there who could have but chose not to. In all likelihood, no one wanted to associate with him in a court or even as a character witness or even with that humble plea for leniency. No one. Everyone was really nervous about identifying with a guy with his head in the block and that must have hurt Paul deeply. Yet look at Paul's heart on show. Here is prayer, verse 16. May it not be held against him. What love and what forgiveness. Of course, this isn't the only occasion when we read of a man deserted in his time of need and a man who in his isolation prays for forgiveness. Jesus did the same, of course. On the night he was betrayed, his disciples fled the garden at his arrest, one so desperate to get away from the clutches of the guards that he'd flee naked. Peter, of course, by the courtyard fire, denying even knowing Jesus three times. And yet on that cross, we hear him say with some of his last breath, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And after his resurrection on the beach by another fire, forgiving and restoring Peter. Uh, what remarkable forgiving love. Ministry is hard sometimes, not because people don't believe the message, that is hard, but because people who should stand with you don't. So what is it then that keeps us going? What is it that keeps us going when there's active opposition or disappointing desertion? Well, the thing that keeps us going is help. It's God's ministry strengthening presence that keeps us going. The Lord stood at my side. You see this? At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side 
and give me strength. What incredible words to read. The one who was deserted does not desert his children. The one who on the cross was forsaken has said he'll not forsake us. Now we sing about this in the song, Jesus I my cross have taken. It's great words. We sing, let the world despise and leave me. They have left my savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them untrue. And while thou shalt smile upon me, God of wisdom, love and might, foes may hate and friends may shun me, show thy face and all is bright. Isn't that truth? Put strength into your ministry. That even with all the active opposition or the disappointments of desertion or people letting you down in whatever kind of way that takes place, doesn't this God's ministry strengthening presence enthuse us and help us as we grow? He's with us all the way. And of course, we ask, what is God's purpose in all of this? Why assure us of his presence? It's so that we can do the very thing that Paul was doing. Verse 17, the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that, here's the purpose for this strength, through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles, the non-Jews, might hear it. Strengthened for ministry to the very last. The Lord stands at your side and gives you strength to do whatever he calls you to do. You are never, ever on your own. And he will do this until the very end. Maintain his presence. Because Paul doesn't just talk about God's presence with him in the past here. Oh, the Lord did stood, he stood by my side once. No, he's talking about it in an ongoing basis. And about how he will until the very end. Where he talks about the future. Verse 18, how the Lord will bring him into his nearer presence. Here's the confidence of a man who suffered more than all of us put together, probably, and experienced such incredible deliverance many times. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. His head is on a block. I'm going to be kept safe. How can a man with his head on the block say that? Because he trusts in a risen king who has said, as I live, you also shall live. Because he trusts in the risen king, Jesus Christ, who, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, his, his resurrection is the first fruits. That special kind of wave offering of the first fruit of a harvest. Look, this is the first bit of the harvest, he would say each year. God's good to us. There's more to come. That's the point of it. So Paul wants us to look at Jesus' resurrection, if you like, being waved at us and saying, look, he really is risen. And guess what? There's more to come. Christ's death, Christ's resurrection is the thing that guarantees ours. 
and promises that we will follow in his way when we die. That's how Paul can talk about being brought safely to this heavenly kingdom. The evil attacks are a reality. Why else would Jesus actually instruct us to pray things like deliver us from evil? Such attacks come in all shapes and sizes, from the physical to the emotional, from discouragement to doubt, from within or without. But the Lord's deliverance is absolutely sure. He will answer the prayer that he's taught us to pray. He will deliver us from evil and bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom if, if we have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and new life. And once again, we see in this letter that the thing that keeps Paul going in his present is his hope for the future. What an example to us. He's strengthened by the presence of God to serve and to hope. And it's like what we sing and will sing. Haste then on from grace to glory. Armed by faith and winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal days before thee. God's own hand shall guide thee there. Soon shall close the earthly mission. Swift shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope soon change to glad fruition. Faith to sight and prayer to praise. That's how this letter ends. And this is how I'll end. Verse 22. The Lord is with you. His grace is yours. I'd like us to take a few minutes in prayer, in response. I'm going to put some uh, prayer points on screen. I'm going to leave them to be read by you and prayed by you. Maybe you want to take this time just to flick back over to Timothy and pray some of these words for us as a church family. Maybe you want to reflect specifically on being ministry-minded to the last mindful of God's ministry strengthening presence take a few minutes in the quietness to pray and respond and Claire's going to come back up and lead us in prayer and that will be the sign that we're bringing that time to a close